Nobody ever said this was easy. The entire challenge is that it needs to somehow fit in with the rest of our lives and therefore comes with an enormous jigsaw puzzle to find a way to get this training in. And let me tell you this, the value of doing this is not that you will achieve it. Anyone can achieve Ultraman with a bit of consistent training. Seriously, it's achieving it despite all the stresses of daily life. Therein lies the challenge and the difficulty of this all. It all looks glamorous on paper, but then when actually having to do the training within our busy lives, that is where it gets overwhelming. I've never met the person slash athlete where life gets easier, less busy a year or so later. It just doesn't happen. It always is either just as busy or even more busy next year. And I just don't believe and many of you hopefully agree, but even if you don't, you know by past experience, life doesn't get emptier. Life doesn't free up magically year over year. This is hard. It needs to be. As your joy and fulfillment at the finish line will reflect this time and how difficult it all was to manage and that you persevered despite it all. If you had the time, the finish line would not feel the same. With summer upon us, we feel new energy and inspiration around what has long defined the endurance athlete, getting out into the mountains, spending time in nature, ripping around on the trails. Those small moments with big impact reinforce that when we are out there, we unleash a different version of ourselves. The one with a curiosity to find out what is below the surface and how to tap into potential. The closer we get to nature, the more inspired we are to think creatively, build community, to become stewards of what fuels us, what drew us here, and what we believe in. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIMP Coach, and this is episode 162. The Weekly Word Podcast is a resource for ultra-endurance athletes like you. We not only discuss ultra-endurance training, mindset, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, we dive deep into the lifestyle of endurance training. As many of you know, endurance training requires quite a sacrifice. And in order for you to get from hitting enter on the race entry to the start line, a lot needs to happen. The obvious is always the training, but there's a considerable space between the training and the start line. And that is what we try to dive into here on the Weekly Word Podcast. Beyond the training, how do we reach endurance potential? How do we navigate these training hours with our family and career and community needs? What is the mindset needed to persevere through some difficult training phases despite a career and a busy family life? Helping athletes understand, navigate, embrace the endurance lifestyle and its benefits. That's what we're looking to discuss. And for some, guide them through the transformation it can bring about. We all went pro in something other than this sport we endeavor. And here on the Weekly Word Podcast, we try to help you navigate that terrain. These endurance adventures are milestones, an incredible achievement, one that remains with us for the rest of our lives. 
one of the many reasons I love this coaching because most of the athletes involved are celebrating one of the best, most meaningful days of their life. Not only unlocking endurance potential that they deep down know inside they had, but also achieving something on the far edge that they deemed possible. Since you are listening to this, the spark within you has been ignited. You are curious to find out what kind of endurance athlete you can be. Less about speed, more about how far can I go, what else can I achieve, and why not me? You don't settle. It's time to push beyond the boundaries of what we thought was possible and reach the endurance athlete potential we always knew deep down inside we had. We continue to define the endurance athlete within us as we move through the season of long days and big ideas. As many of you have shared those ideas and questions around them with me, I dove into a few emails with David on today's episode. In general, the next few episodes are about you, the listener, and the questions you have as we are returning full steam into the racing season again, along with events and formal organized adventures around the world. It's been fun watching so many of you get out there again and compete As we answer emails and your questions, of course, David will continue to prompt longer explanations for these training theories and approaches, but also some helpful tips, stories, and experiences that allow you to be a more successful endurance athlete, as well as continue to reach endurance potential. This week, some of the questions and topics we address include a variety of heart rate zones, pacing, triathlon, ultra running, all kinds of different topics. Some of them include heart rate zones for run versus bike and how they're different, heart rate versus wattages and perceived effort, faster versus slower training. We go through no such thing as a fast first Ironman. I just don't believe in that approach and how I coach in general. Kilojoules to predict the calorie burn during an Ironman, as well as for any type of long cycling event. We talk about cycling specific technique and pedaling squares, how to prevent injury, how does cross training help, and nutrition for the first Ironman. Many little tidbits and details that I think you'll enjoy. And again, like I was saying, we are going to be of service for the next few podcasts because there's so many questions, so many emails I've received. And as always, the deep dive that comes from those questions usually discovers all the different training tips and techniques that I believe are helpful to you. All right, well, let's dive right into it. Email one, and we're going back a few months here because it's been quite some time since we've had a chance to dive into some emails and questions that I've received for the podcast ever since David joined us. That was back in January where we're diving into some email questions. So it's time to sort of catch up here a little bit. And the first one is from Randy. And again, I'm going back to February 24th. Uh, Your podcast is great. Quick question. I've been training in zone two while running for a couple months now. Now that the mornings in Scottsdale are warming up, (laughs) they're probably a lot hotter now. It is time to get some miles in on the bike. I'm 56 years old and I keep my running heart rate between 122 and 132. 
Okay, hopefully you determine that, Randy, in a testing fashion versus the age divided by square pi, add in a star and multiply by three unicorns, which a lot of those formulas are basically the same as. Should I maintain that same zone for biking as well? There you go. Any chance you are considering devoting a podcast episode to zone training in the future? I suspect you have in the past. If so, what might that ep episode be? Well, I am. We talk about zone two training basically every podcast. <laughs> I find, don't you think, David? Yeah, and I suppose since I took it on as a responsibility, Randy, you can also blame me for not having every single, um, you know. 160 episodes indexed as I've only done a few of them so far. So we don't actually know exactly where in each episode all the zone two stuff is, but that's something that may or may not exist long in the future because it takes hundreds of hours of work. Yeah, that, that as well as, you know, and it's a continuous concept that comes up and there's little finer details that might be um, overlooked. And so therefore going back to my snarky comment, um, Determining your heart rate zone is basically something that's going to be very important for you in your training. You're going to be spending a lot of hours doing this type of training, and especially in extreme conditions of Scottsdale and hot weather, you want to know that every beat <laughs> is the correct one because it will suppress your heart rate so quickly, the heat, that you will be walking a lot of the time anyway. So hopefully those numbers are accurately achieved. And for those of you wondering, I mean, this is what I do a lot in my training. Once the seasons change and the temperatures, let's say, go from the 50s here in the Bay Area at a track to the 80s or 90s, I retest. I mean, I just do another five by one mile test or hit the lab in post-pandemic days um, for another test. It is what it is. I want data. I want my proper heart rate zones. And given the hotter temperatures or flip the times of year, cooler temperatures, that will affect our heart. <laughs> so please keep that in mind. But back to this question, and that is heart rate zones for cycling versus running. Well, keep in mind, when you're running, you're swinging your arms, you're using your legs, you're overcoming more force on the ground by your own propulsion than you do when cycling. Cycling, there's coasting, you're basically just using your lower body. And so therefore, the blood being pumped by the heart is being sent only basically to the lower parts of your body, legs. It's not being sent everywhere and needed everywhere. And so yes, the heart rate zones for cycling are anywhere from 10 to 5 to 7 beats lower than running. So not to be uh, overlooked, because that's, again, a big difference. And I would say for the more untrained, it's 10 beats lower. For the more trained, it's 5 to 7 beats. So find a space in between those two and apply it to yourself. And so that becomes an interesting dilemma for some people. Like what? Even slower heart rate? You know, in this case, 112 to 122, you know, that's, that's a low heart rate. Okay, he's 56, so maybe that's just right. But just work through that is basically what I'm saying. What do you think? 
I think you nailed it. And with uh, your bike, I know, Chris, you don't recommend that a lot of people who ride outdoors have a power meter because, it's, well, as we know, it doesn't really improve the quality of the training very much. However, that is an alternative option. I don't know that this gentleman necessarily needs, but if they did want to attach a, you know, for example, to put your toe in the water, a $300 um, single-sided four-eye power meter that replaces one of your pedal cranks, uh, you would be able to throw heart rate out the window entirely on the bike and just mm-hmm you know, stay in your zone two wattage. That's another way to do it, but heart rate's also a very good way to do it. And another way just to triangulate data, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, and that is your ability to eventually get away from heart rate and power, that you know yourself well enough, the sensations, the feelings, the insights, the signals of your body, that you can basically say, yeah, I'm running right now at 127 heart rate, and you're within a beat or two, or you're cycling and you're going, you know, I'm probably at 200 to 205 watts and you look down or you know whatever you look at the app and there it is you're exactly there that's where we were looking to get to heart rate pace power are all just another data input to validate what we're feeling and what's actually happening on the road or yeah or in the pool i mean it's either on the road the trail or Off the pool we go. Or- the water. So not to be overlooked, data is great, but it's not the end all be all of everything. We'd rather get to a place where we can feel it. And so like you just said, David, power is great as another input. Like you can even, if you have a fourth input, you know, you, you have more data. You, now you have a square of inputs, right? You can use all four to continue to narrow down is what I'm feeling, sensing, accurate. Yeah. I think you nailed it. It's it's a thing that doesn't come up as much on the podcast is effort, going by effort. Um, zone two should not be hard and you should not need to grind. It should be comfortable. You're working, but it's not um, strenuous. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It, cool. and, and, and feeling in general is something that a lot of athletes ask me follow-up questions on because there'd be workouts where I put in zone two and then other workouts easy and then other workouts aerobic and then other workouts all day pace. It's just continuing to give a variety of explanations of the sensations we're looking to have while we're out there. And hopefully we get to a point where we're not constantly staring at our watch or at a computer and we're doing it on feel. And that's that's what we're trying to graduate to so that you're looking and absorbing the fresh air, nature, the the training, the insights, hearing what your body is telling you. And of course, as many of you know, hearing what your thoughts and your in, in, internal monitor is telling you too. So, Chris, when you go for a 60-minute easy run or a 60-minute Z2, how often do you look at your watch, would you say? Or how many times would you look at your watch? Lately, over the yeah. last two, three years, zero. Same. <laughs> zero. Um, yeah, it's just not something I do. And because I know what my easy, what my moderate, and what my strong slash hard effort is. And the stimulus gets done somehow. And like you and I were talking before the podcast as we were reviewing some athletes and some other thoughts that you had, I don't train hard. 
Um, rarely do I ever train with exertion. I'm an aerobic engine, an aerobic um, machine that's been going for 25 years. And so I rely on my aerobic engine so often. Now, when I did go back to pushing the effort and getting ready, let's say for Ironman, um, you know, to have a result that was faster than the previous result, <laughs> for lack of a better description, um, to win, I should say. It was, yeah, there was track workouts and there was very hard interval workouts on the bike and, you know, swimming, not so much, never was any type of uh, real focus or structure about that. But for running and cycling, for sure, uh, it was definitely integrated into the training. I had two weekly workouts in the city on interval uh, on trainers where I taught a class of indoor cycling and we had 25 to 30 people in there. And I would get my work done with everybody else in those classes. And as everybody from those classes would always tell you, it depended on what I needed for my training is what everybody else in the class <laughs> <laughs> And they would always know when things started getting very serious or my, my temper was uh, not quite as calm, <laughs> they knew Kona was just around the corner and the work was being done and I was in a pretty deep hole of um, getting a lot of training in and a lot of quality in and so forth. But back to the question of for the last few years, no, zero, zero or anything anaerobic. We did discuss that I, in the pool, I do push myself and I am trying to get faster and I'm trying to train for Tahoe and that I'm fast enough. Uh, well, I, I, that's not even the right description that I am straight up fast. And that when I go slower, that easy all day pace is more efficient, is more economical. Um, I swam 10K in Lake Sonoma this past weekend, and I swam with another guy and my kayaker and the guy who runs my cruise at basically any event I do, whether it's 100 milers or he'll be running my, my crew for this. And he observed right away, he's like, you might, your distance per stroke might have gone down a little bit, but your length of your freestyle, even when you're five miles in, didn't change. So you're still gliding, you're still getting, so that's exactly the outcome I'm looking for. Whereas the guy I was swimming with, his turnover went, not only went way down, but his distance per stroke way down, went way down. So now he's not getting nearly as far for every stroke and I want to still stay very long. And that's the outcome, in my opinion, of doing a lot of speed work so that when I slow down, I stay long and efficient. So a concept that would translate as well to running and as well as to cycling. And a lot of what we talk about with cadence work and that you see me put in to a lot of athletes work, and that is focused cadence work is like the number one uh, priority in cycling to me because you can always add more power but can you add that power while maintaining a good cadence, an efficient cadence, one that combines muscular power along with cardiovascular power, your heart versus your muscular power. And your heart can go for many, many hours slash days, as we know. <laughs> and muscularly, we can run out of power very quickly. 
So there's a sweet spot between the two, and that's in cycling, that's in running, and in swimming. Awesome. I'm going to go back two or three emails because I have some email that I wrote to my athletes, but I put it into the podcast folder because I wanted to share these thoughts um, that I shared with an athlete with all of you because I felt they were good examples. Please remember, this was never intended to be a full-time, it's easy to train for endurance events endeavor. We have jobs, families, and other community social responsibilities. In that lies the challenge. Important is to not judge ourselves, our athlete selves, because just like the positives that flow into other aspects of our lives, so does the negative. And we cannot ask the athlete version of ourselves to be something it is not, be accountable to some unrealistic ideal. So in that, accept, forgive, be at peace with your continued progress ever so gently, being better than you were weeks ago, months ago, etc. We are never looking for an ideal. Our mind likes to do this. We are looking at our own personal, gentle, nurturing improvement. That is what I often mean by exhale out there. Accept, smile, and be at peace with where you are currently progressing. Moving forward into the past, that's what I call it. Forward progress into what is, into the next moment, which becomes our past as we move into the next moment. Moving forward into the past. You know, I know you know, that you're doing great, doing it, doing this training. So that's a, a, a little paragraph, a, bunch, a few tidbits, I should say, of me communicating with an athlete who was giving herself a hard time on how she's training and how she's progressing and not as much with regards to her fitness, but that she doesn't really have an event and she feels like she's floundering a little bit. And so I wanted to make sure that she recognizes that this isn't our 20-year-old self, what we had all this time. And we talk about this on this podcast about we all are busy. We all have lives that demand a lot from us. And fitting this endurance training into those lives where how often, let me ask you all listening, how often have you said when you're done with some big training week or even a big training day or even a training afternoon, how often do you say to yourself, how did I fit anything into this life before? Like I'm barely fitting in these workouts. What made me think six months ago or 10 months ago I could fit this in? It just shows that we make it happen, right? Um, I say to myself all the time in my training right now, like, how did I used to train for Ironman? Finding time for six-hour bike rides, three-hour runs, multiple times, not a week, that's exaggerated, but you know, long days and long weekday training days of two-hour bike rides or you know, hour and a half runs plus a swim or some strength training. Like I can barely fit in my work and my limited training now, but that's how it works. We go through these waves of phases of our lives where it frees up, it opens up, and we make priorities. We choose where we expend our energy. And that's what many of us as endurance athletes are going through constantly, this tug of war with ourselves on how do we find the time? How do we make it happen? 
And when we don't, that we should not judge ourselves and look at it that we're failing. We're doing the best we can. Back to a listener email. Um, this is from Andre. He's uh, emailed a few times before, and I've answered his questions on the podcast. Once again, a good question being asked here and, and timely as the racing season is beginning. Hi, Chris. Hope you're well. I'm doing hopefully my first full Ironman in 13 weeks. Now that he sent this in the end of February. <laughs> Regarding pacing, I've read info all over the place. My FTP is around 275, and I race a 70.3 at 240 watts. So we're just going to do an email here that's a little bit more technical because I know many of you care about that stuff. So let's dive into it. Um, it's unusual that I dive into the numbers like this, but I thought this might be fun. So I raised 70.3 at 240 watts, 88 to 89%. He writes in parentheses, that's percentage of FTP. And I can still run under a 120 half marathon. So you can see he's a solid runner. Um, what percent of my FTP should I aim for to still have some run legs while not wasting bike time? The race is pancake flat, so I'm mostly sure that I'm looking for a sub five hour bike split. What about the run? 70.3 pace is around 345 per kilometer, and my marathon time is 238. Is a sub three hour marathon feasible? I love to hear about your not so well paced first Ironman. <laughs> yes, that story of me lying in a ditch um, in the last podcast, and I don't want to make the same mistakes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but don't want to leave anything left in the tank either. Nutrition is dialed. I can consume 300 plus calories on the bike and 200 plus calories on the run of a 70.3. 70.3 best time is 4.05. Is sub nine too much for a first time? All right. And then he wrote, writes, feel free to share answer on the podcast if you like. I know this is probably coming a little late, given that it was 13 weeks in February. And um, your training should not necessarily be uh, on Ironman Watts that early, 13 weeks out. So plus you have a lot more data now to look at long rides and see how you've run off those long rides. Hopefully you've done some race prep simulations in your training where you can see your pacing and your burn rate, which I'll go into in a moment, on uh, the bike in order to properly run off the bike and so forth. So these numbers all sound really good. Um, and it, it sounds to me on paper like you should be set up for a fast first Ironman. Therein lies the issue. <laughs> There's no such thing as a fast first Ironman. And very rarely do athletes put it together in their first Ironman. And so I usually like to give the advice, if you were one of my athletes, to just go have fun, use your talents and your abilities, what you know so far, you know, race where you are, not where you want to be. Um, do your best in observing and applying strategy. We would go over that prior to the race, sort of go through race strategy, what to expect at different times. But that's not the purpose of answering this email. So I'm going to try to answer this email in, in the pieces that he's looking for. Um, rarely have I ever in my 25 years of racing and 42 Ironmans ever used my FTP number 
to determine my race pace. It's just not something I, I never believed in a formula or a percentage of what, because if that were the case, I would probably have not raced the way I've been able to race. And that is having the best possible run in an Ironman. And that's the key ingredient. Anybody can swim and bike fast in an Ironman. Does not take a lot of skill, even that much fitness to swim and bike fast. It's all about the run. And your ability to run an effective marathon that you are capable of running off of a swim and a bike is the most important ingredient of Ironman, exponentially more than in a 70.3. So therefore, I would 100% go backwards of an Ironman, especially of a first Ironman, and figure out what do I need to get out of this Ironman to have my fastest possible marathon. And if you're capable of running a 120 half marathon on the back end of a 70.3, yes, you should be focused on running just around three hours. So if you take that double of the half marathon that puts you off the bike, which is what you did at that, at some 70.3, that puts you at 240. I would give yourself 20 to 30 minutes slower of coming off of the back end of a 2.4 mile swim and 112 mile bike. That's a good sort of starting point when you're thinking about figuring out race pace. So that puts you on the three hour mark. And if you can run, no matter if you do a seven hour bike, if you can run a three hour marathon off the back end after a 2.4 mile swim and 112 mile bike, that is an amazing starting point for a future Ironman that is very fast. If you overcycle by just a hair, you're running 320. If you overcycle by too much, you're running a 330. And then you'll never know what you're capable of running on the back end of a long day versus in your first is the is one of the rare times you can actually figure this out without having expectations. As of the next Ironman, you've done one. You have expectations on how you want to do it. But I tell you one thing, knowing that you can run a three-hour marathon on the back end is one of the most powerful and amazing feelings you can have going into your next Ironman because then you can always inch up the effort level on the bike. Let's say you finish this first Ironman going, man, I felt amazing on the run. Can't believe I ran a you know, 303 in my first Ironman, which puts you very far forward in the race. Not a lot of people can run three hours on the back end. And let's say you bike too easy. Let's say you didn't go sub five hour bike slant on a flat course. Let's say you did a 510 and you really, for lack of a better term, lollygagged it through the course because you were conservative and you were really thinking my primary focus today is a fast marathon. Well, you can always go back to the next Ironman and go, well, what will it take if I, how much will I compromise my three hour marathon if I bike 455, let's say on the same course or a little bit higher wattage given on another course. And that is something, and then maybe you run a 305. Well, it's still amazing to go a little bit faster on the bike and still run a 305. That's a card in your back pocket that you will never want to give up. And I'll tell you, 
with most professional triathletes, most Ironman athletes on the front of the course, on the front of the results, on the podiums, have not ever had a chance to do it that way. Most back into a fast marathon after six, seven, eight, nine Ironmans. They never get an opportunity to really play the formula this way. And those that do have success a lot sooner in the age group, in the pro field, than those that wait and continue to try to figure it out with a fast swim and a fast bike. So that is always my advice for somebody who's quite talented to do it to do in their first Ironman. I had somebody who's a very talented Olympic distance athlete, national champion and so forth, who did his first 70.3 a month ago um, in Haines City. And that's the exact same thing I told him too. I was like, you have a rare opportunity doing a 13.1 mile run fast and with a conservative approach on the bike. He's a very fast swimmer. Him and I swim in, in master swimming all the time together. And yeah, he's a good ways faster than me. So therefore, he's going to manage the race from the front all day, right? That's a given. Nobody's going to swim faster than him. And so therefore, he knows all day what place he's in. That's the advantage swimmers have. We have the advantage of all day knowing I'm in first, I'm in second. I'm in 42nd in the meantime, because 41 people have passed me on the bike, which happens to swimmers. But then, you know, off the bike, you're in 42nd, and now every person you pass on the run, and if you were conservative on that bike, you're going to pass a lot of people, and you can work your way back into the top 10 easily. Not a problem. So again, using the course and the distance, the 70.3 miles or the 140.6 miles to your advantage. And in your case, Andre, the fact that you can run fast on the back end is a key ingredient that you don't want to lose sight of. And again, nothing feels better than passing people late in the marathon than being passed. And you set that up by being conservative on the bike which is just all a long way to say, chill out on the bike. Don't overthink the bike. Go on feel. Go on a wattage that feels right. And then maybe 20 to 30 miles into this bike, flat bike, see where your wattage has settled and then sort of give it a range of five plus five or minus 5% from there. So if you're riding at, you know, uh, 275 is your FTP. You raised to 240, um, which, by the way, would be interesting to know how much you weigh. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> because 240 for my weight is uh, is not a very high wattage number. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, if you're tiny and you're a fast runner, maybe that's a, a a different story. Anyway, let's just say you're riding at 225. And you see that sort of aligns well with sensations and effort. And if you're arrow and efficient in the arrow position and you have a good arrow position and you're focused in the arrow position and you're relaxed in that arrow position, what I call fear, focused, efficient, arrow, and relaxed, then you can ride at 200 watts and you're doing a sub five hour bike split. I had a guy in Kona that I coached many years ago. Um, I couldn't believe it. He had like a five-hour bike split or a 503 in Kona just on like 205 watts or 207 watts was his normalized power. 
And I looked at his file afterwards, but he was extremely efficient at staying in the arrow position with a relaxed 85 to 90 cadence, holding a very smooth wattage, never got out of the arrow position and just stayed there for five hours, drinking, eating, climbing, all of it, just super smooth. And it just shows that how much wattage we waste by sitting up, getting out of the aerial position, by not being efficient, by pedaling squares, by coming up to stretch our back, by coming up through aid stations, by coming up to climb or descend or get on the brakes. There's so many windows where we get out of the aerial position that just destroys the purpose of a $10,000 aero bike in many cases. Um, you might as well be back to a $1,500 bike then. Um, but that's a different story. So that's how I would go about it. And um, I would rather have a solid swim, a conservative bike where you know, in hindsight, you probably could have gone a little bit faster, but you feel great at the finish line knowing that you ran a fast marathon. And I guarantee you, you do that, you will be happy with the result. Um, the other thing that I would... Uh, be careful to say here is nutrition is dialed. Until you do an Ironman, <laughs> there's no such thing as nutrition is dialed because our body just feels different when we're going that long. Our body absorbs different after five, six hours versus after what your, um, uh, your 70.3 of four to four and a half hours is a completely different equation. You only empty your glycogen stores around two and a half to three hours. So you're basically only managing your fueling and truly your fueling for 90 minutes max, maybe only an hour plus. So now instead you're managing it for five-ish hours, six-ish hours and how your GI, um, how your gut handles that and how you're absorbing those calories and how you're drinking and how you're managing forward, I would say if you're like the numbers don't add up. If I can consume 300 plus calories, but your FTP, uh, your FTP is 275 and you're biking at 240, that's either way too many calories for somebody who's lighter or you race that 70.3 going quite chill and relaxed at 240 because you, you're a bigger guy and you can, you know what I mean? <laughs> can you explain that, Chris? What's the back of the napkin math you're doing on wattage versus calories? Oh, there's no, um, I just know over the years that 300 plus calories is a lot to be consuming an hour on the bike. Even for a five hour bike, that's a 15 to 1600 calorie um, intake because you just did a 2.4 mile swim. So it's a, a, you start at zero. That's a lot of calories. Um, and that's something, you know, don't get me wrong. There's been years where I've consumed 1,800 to 2,000 calories. Um, and I've, you know, I was able to do it still effectively. But I knew my sweet spot was less than that. And, you know, again, I raced at 175, 173. I rarely, but a couple of times made the mistake of racing too light that ridiculous concept called race weight, which will be a separate episode on the podcast because it just makes my head explode every time I hear it. Um, so 300 plus is a lot. And a lot of people get that number around the 30 grams of carbs. And so you start working backwards and you realize with all the other stuff in there, you're doing 300 plus calories. That's a lot to cons consume. 
a real sweet spot to go by if you're going by good wattage numbers is 30% of your burn rate. So in an Ironman, let's say at a steady but somewhat conservative number, let's say uh, for him, that's 215 to 220, he's probably burning around 600 to 700 kilojoules per hour. Kilojoules is similar to a kilocalorie, the beautiful metric system. Um, and therefore, 650 to 700 calories an hour, you know, 30% of that is, you know, 220, right? 210 calories. And that's a good spot to start. So what happens here, you eat that much for that many hours, you're going to be burpy and uh, gurgly and upset on the run because you're sitting with a lot of calories that your body, your gut can't absorb because it's in the arrow position, pushing blood to the working muscles, not helping digest. You're the coffee filter is spilling over, like I like to describe it. There's a sweet spot in our gut where you're pouring hot water on the coffee, the ground coffee through the filter and it's being absorbed. It's going through and it's dripping out into the carafe. You pour that onto that hot water on too fast or too much at a time, it starts backlogging and it will spill over. And then those grinds get in your coffee and it's a, it's a big old mess. That's your stomach in the same way. You don't figure out that sweet spot of where you're going over and you start having the GI, the gurgles, the, you know, the GI issues, the diarrhea, the burpiness, all that, it, it can happen quickly. So that's where I, that's where the numbers start playing into it, 30% of your burn rate. Now there's a theory that I've worked very successfully for my own training that is around um, kilojoules consumed um, or burned for the entire bike ride, but you need multiple Ironman's of files in order to validate that data for yourself. And that basically says, you know, and this is what pro cyclists do. If you ever want to know how they know what to consume, they know exactly their burn rate by hour on the bike, no matter where they are going up hills, going on flats, going into the wind, going tailwind, going downhill, cool temperatures, hot temperatures, burn rate stays the same. Out of the 42 Ironmans I've done, I probably have files for 38 of them. Every single one of them, the overall Ironman bike ride kilojoule burn is between 4,200 and 4,400 kilojoule. It's that hilly or not. Remember, because the faster you ride, the higher the wattage, therefore the higher the burn rate, the quicker you get to the end point. So higher burn rate, quicker finish, burn rate A slower ride, lower watts, lower burn rate, longer time to finish 112 mile. Same burn rate. <laughs> it, it's the same. You still have to move your mass over the distance, and that's a certain burn. So once you have that data, now you can start going backwards and training that. And that's what a lot of pro cyclists do in their prep for grand tours they figure out and they work on the fact that how do I feel if I burn? In my case, I would go out and ride 4,000 kilojoules. I would keep riding easy, fast, uphill, downhill, any terrain until my computer showed 4,000 kilojoules. I wouldn't get off the bike. Now run, because guess what? 
The tax on the body is exactly the same as if you just did 112 miles in a race. It's still 4,200 or 4,000 kilojoules. Now go run six miles. Now go run 10 miles. Now do six by one mile repeats where your rest is, you know, faster than race pace. The, the simulation that you know I have our athletes do, David. So it's there's different ways to skin this cat, but you need a variety of Ironman experience in that. And that really helps us as coaches and you as the athlete to really dial in a really powerful, effective strategy to execute on race day. Could this athlete go do a 112 mile bike simulation in order to get this data or does it have to come from an Ironman? He could, but um, you don't trust it until you've done a few Ironmans. It's hard to just do that blind because again, until you see it, like, oh my gosh, like I didn't believe it at first either. But then, you know, in what years it was my brother's wedding, which I'm not going to think of it right now. But that summer, I went back to Europe right before Hawaii because my brother was getting married in September. And I had a couple um, boarding school friends who um, one was on the um, telecom cycling team. And he wasn't good enough to make one of the tour stage uh, tour events like the Tour de France, the Giro, or the Vuelta. But they had the World Championships coming up in October, and so um, I trained with their team, their peloton, their group, um, and the manager for uh, ten days as I was in Germany getting ready for Kona. And that's where I first started learning. I I was a sponge. I was just asking questions all day. <laughs> That's While amazing. riding with, you know, 14 pro cyclists, um, of them leading the group, Jens Voigt, um, some of the big names in, uh, in pro cycling. You know, so Andreas Kloden was on that group. For those of you that know cycling, those are some big names. Um, so no Jan Ulrich, he was done, um, for the season at that point, but his entire group of domestiques. And so that's where I learned how to ride easy and see how easy these guys, I mean, it's not like they're in off season, how easy they ride. And then the switch goes on. The manager pulls up and says, you know, Andre, uh, 10 kilometers at 360 watts, cadence 88, off you go. Oh, oh off he goes. Um, then we'll be at a base of a climb. It'd be like, clearly, um, up you go. 440 watts, never let it drop below 400, but um, no higher than 460. Um, keep the cadence in line. Be ready to stand only once every 10 minutes. Off you go. Oh, my you know? God. And then they would go bye-bye, and I would not be on the back anymore. But Those body um, weights, that's insane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and the crazy thing is, but but the other 100 kilometers, the other 60 kilometers, the other 75 kilometers, when we say conversational pace, oh my gosh, these guys, it is conversational pace. Sure, they're not running and swimming and doing, right, as well. So that's all they're doing, spending time on their bikes or the time on the bike. But they're also, there's no junk miles. It's a 100 kilometer bike ride that day of which it's all conversational pace, you know, four different languages, the Italians and the Spaniards and the Germans and everybody just, blah, 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 blah. it's like, you can barely hear yourself think there's so much talking going on, but that's how easy it is. It's 
it's frustrating when you come from other cycling where everybody always hammers or is riding a tick too hard and you see how easy these guys are riding. And then you realize, yeah, they have to ride this easy because they go easy on easy days and go hard on hard days, or they go easy when it's time to go easy. And then when it's time to do the work, they have all their energy physically and mentally available to dig deep, to grind, to really ask everything in their body to work efficiently with them towards the outcome of the training day that the manager is trying to get them to do, right? So Yeah. And that can, I think, get confusing for people too, because just because that's what they do doesn't mean you copy that, right? These guys are training, what, 30, 35 hours a week. And so when they're spending huge amounts of time in these incredibly low heart rate zones or these incredibly low power zones, that's effective because they do it for so long. But if yeah. you're doing it for one-tenth of the amount of time they're doing it, then you should probably train a little harder. So that's <laughs> yeah. where people get confused. Yeah. And again, um, horses for courses, right? Depends what you're getting ready for. Depends your your history and the training. Depends how many years you've been through it. Depends on your body type and the event you're getting ready for. It's There's so many factors, right? Um, that it'd be, it'd be naive to yeah. say that that works for everybody. Oh, you're so right. Um, circling back to Andre, a couple open questions here. One is, I can't remember what exactly his calories were that he said for the run, which we haven't really mm -hmm. talked about plus. yet. Yeah, that was alarmingly high given that this athlete, I have a sneaking suspicion, is not very big. Yeah. So, yeah, both those numbers are a little bit high. Um, so, and that's why when I see nutrition is dialed, I can consume 300 plus calories on the bike and 200 plus calories on the run. Those are two things, um, you know. I've learned the hard way, and <laughs> it's funny. All those years, I swam two events, um, the 200 Butterfly and the 400 IM. And I had seasons where I was remarkably confident in one of the two events. So my training in the 200 Butterfly was going amazing, and I was convinced I'm going to have a spectacular result in the 200 Butterfly. And I would go to a meet, you know, all rested and tapered and ready to go. and my 200 butterfly was, oh, was oh, so, so, and I had a great 400 IM. <laughs> and then there's years where I'm like, oh, man, my 400 IM is going so well. I am absolutely going to crush it. 400 IM, eh, great 200 butterfly. Huh. And that's the same thing I've done in triathlon. The years that I feel like uh, my biking, man, I am going to feel amazing on the bike and therefore have a great run. Nope. Feel terrible on the bike. Have a great run. <laughs> Yeah, years I've run a ton of miles, ton of miles and tons of tempo miles and tons. I mean, I could fall asleep running 640s, right? Like 20, 30 miles in a row, just comfortable. Nope, wasn't able to do it in, in whether in Kona or whatever event it was. And but yet I'd have amazing bike. It's so that's why whenever I see something is dialed, I always say to my athletes, be careful. <laughs> Just when you think something is dialed, it often works out. It, it isn't. And that something else works out great that you weren't thinking of or weren't putting a lot of um, hope into. So, How many years did it take you to get to 640 minute per mile pace being easy pace? Well, uh, you know, I started this triathlon endeavor in 1997 
and I would say uh, my glory years, so 10 years, uh, 2007 to 2014 were my years where I did sub nine Ironman. So, you know, in order to do that, you'd have to run six forties for a, a fair amount of time. So you're at a sub three to three hour marathon. Yeah. In those, let's just say five years leading up to your peak run performance, your peak mm-hmm. run ability, were you chipping off five seconds per mile every season or was it more? Or was it less? What did that progression look like? Um, not that dramatic. I was already a pretty efficient, not um, <laughs> good looking runner, <laughs> nor uh, very fast. You know, I did a couple of standalone marathons and can never run much faster than 247, 248, but yet I could do a 255, 258 on the back end of an Ironman. I don't know why. Um, it's just I, the diesel, right? Like I never trained hard. I was just trained steady and aerobic. And I did apply the, you know, Maffetone approach and the Mark Allen approach early on. And I did early on in my Ironman years always say what I was saying earlier. I cared most about the marathon. If I can run the marathon to my abilities, even back when it was 712s, I think my first Ironman, no, my second Ironman, my first Ironman, you guys all heard. <laughs> I started off hot, but didn't finish quite that well. But my second Ironman was Ironman Germany when it was still in Roth, um, um, just outside of um, my hometown, actually, where my brother and my parents lived. And there, that's a fast run course, and it's known as a world record course. But I already there, my second Ironman was running, I ran a 320, 322 marathon. And so that's what, 715, 720s. Um, and so already there, I knew, you know, there's a, the running ability off the bike and steady pace was going to be something that's going to benefit me. But I saw those numbers in training. I saw 705, 707s very comfortably in, already prior to that in Ironman. In, in my Ironman training. So it was ne- not necessarily that. I was a heart rate, not junkie, but I was all about aerobic. It wasn't until I got a cycling coach, um, two, three, three cycling coaches um, over, over, over about a decade that they taught me how to even cycle harder because I was spending five, six, seven hours a day on a weekend just riding around at 115, 120 heart rate. <sighs> Oh, I thought you were going to say watts. Okay. No, no, no. No, I didn't have a wattage. I didn't have a wattage meter then. Okay. Um, That makes sense. That's early. So yeah, that was, that was quite common. And, and then finally I had a, a, a big pop in performance on the bike. Um, once I started integrating some intervals and some longer tempo, you know, an hour at zone three, you know, three by one hour at zone three or something that we would do a lot. And my athletes recognize these workouts, you know, every hour on the bike, add five, seven Watts until you, you know, until you blow up. Um, so let's say you start at, you know, two twenty, and, you know, by the hour, hour, uh, um, five, you know, you're holding two sixty Watts for <laughs> nonstop. That's gotta be your average. Your average Watts has to go up by five to seven Watts per hour. So yeah, no, it was, but then you know you're able to hold flat wattage for a very long time, um, things like that. Well, and and many of my athletes know, and podcast listeners from very beginning, and those that have known me for a long time, 
the famous two, two, two was always a very helpful workout towards those uh, run paces because it would be every Sunday um, for many years, probably from like 2002 to 2010. It was probably 40 Sundays a year. Um, we would swim two hours, bike two hours, run two hours. And um, yeah, you, you get to that run and the tra- transitions were five or six minutes, not, not long. Um, practiced pacing, you practice nutrition and hydration. And the 222, you know, that's a big swim. You know, you got to figure that's a 7,000 yard mm-hmm. swim. Um, then, you know, a 30 ish, 38 mile, 37 mile bike, nothing hard. And then, uh, then a 16 mile run. And there was a gate because um, we'd park at the pool and that's where we'd start our bike ride and end our bike ride and transition to a run. And we'd run through this neighborhood and out past the golf course and it was steady uphill, not very, in, maybe 1% or 2% uphill on the way out. And we'd touch the gate and that was exactly 8.0 miles from our car and run back. You know, and you'd hold, you know. 657, six, just under sevens out, comfortable. You, you can't mess with your heart rate numbers. But then you'd have the, you know, a little bit of a downhill <laughs> on the way back. And so, yeah, you quickly get the leg turnover going. Another concept that's so important. And, you know, you're, you're running 640s on the way back. So you averaged, you know, 650 for a 16 mile run on the back end. And that was the day before a six hour bike ride. And, you know, a Saturday. And yeah. That would, that would, that would be the, the formula. I would start that in March and I would do those Sundays, if not every Sunday, at least three Sundays a month. And I have a lot of athletes that did these with me. We were a big group then. Um, and I would do it all the way through September into Kona week. Why two, two, two? I mean, that's a lot of swimming and no biking, relatively speaking. Um, again, it's just the accumulation of fatigue. Anybody who has spent any time under my coaching or training with me knows I am a big swim run advocate and had nothing to do with the sport of Attilo. <laughs> it has all to do with the fatigue that a full body workout like swimming with oxygen and swimming in the sun for two hours puts on the body and the stress it puts on the heart. When you start running, you are trashed you're tired, you're fatigued, you're beat up, and then finding your running stride, then feeling good in the running, you it's it's some work and letting the heart rate fall and putting a good swim behind you and then still running well with a low heart rate, that's a sign of fitness um, that many, many over the years have come to really recognize and enjoy because it's it's a it's a remarkable feeling on how depleting an hour and a half to two hour swim is. Yeah, I guess from a time efficiency perspective, you're not going to get any better than that. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, cycling is great too, but as any triathlete will tell you, um, they, you often, I would say majority of the time, if not all the time for some, but the majority of the time feel better running off the bike than running straight up. Mm-hmm. Almost every triathlete will tell you that. Yeah. Just feels better. So you do a two-hour bike, that's a sweet spot, right? An hour and a half, two hours, just enough to create a little bit of fatigue, but you're also perfectly warm and ready to go, and you run on air the first 30 minutes. So that's what a lot of people experience when they're running a 70.3 
or even an Ironman. And the first two, three miles are what I call free speed. Your body just seems to exhale, happy to be off the bike, just running on air. And you often have to slow yourself down because you look down and you're going, oh my gosh, whoa, run way too fast. Or those who aren't experienced are like, man, if I feel this good running, this pace, this easy, this early on, I'm going to have a great day. And then the mm. piano drops on them at mile five, <laughs> straight out of the cartoon. <laughs> you mentioned pedaling squares. Could you explain that? Yeah. I mean, um, that's, uh, it's funny you say that. I was talking to an athlete about this the other day, and that is when we pedal squares, what you often used to hear on a trainer when they were tire based, not chain ring based, is the wow, 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 of the rubber mm -hmm. on the back, you know, tire holder. And that is you're pushing down on the um, pedal stroke from 12 o'clock to six o'clock and nowhere else. You're not getting any equal pressure throughout the pedal stroke, throughout the circle of your pedal stroke. And you're just doing each leg side to side, boom, down, push down, relax, push the other leg down, because as the other leg's pushing down, the other one's coming up and boom, boom, boom. It's like beating of a drum, right? And it's not in a very efficient way because you're using a lot of force on the downstroke and then letting that all dissipate on the upstroke. And it's a circle. If you do it right, you carry momentum from five o'clock on your pedal stroke through about nine to 10 o'clock on your pedal stroke, and then just easy come over the top also with power. Any good cyclist will tell you they feel best, most powerful on their bike those days when they can connect to their pedal stroke already from like 11 o'clock over the top of their pedal stroke through the bottom of their pedal stroke and sweep up. It's like, man, I knew I was having a good cycling day because I was engaged in the pedal stroke in the circle early from like 11 o'clock on versus just mashing what we call mashing from one o'clock to like six o'clock or for triathletes from like one o'clock to seven o'clock. Since you're leaning forward a little bit on your hips, you're pushing back sort of on the downstroke. And yeah, so if you imagine a square, right, you're pushing down, you're just you know, sort of pulling back, then you hit that corner of the far square on the far corner of the square. And then you're just going up because the other leg is pushing down on that end of the square. And then over the top, you're just bringing it forward. There's no circle. It's just it's pedaling squares. That's a good explanation. And I didn't hear you mention scraping mud off the bottom of your shoes and that sensation to activate the posterior chain. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's another description of it. Um, just sweeping through. That is a common description. They, as if you have a golf shoe on and you're just getting rid of the grass um, at the bottom of your shoe on that, that goofy mat that every golf club has that before you enter the clubhouse to clean your shoes, your spikes. So you got to sweep your foot through it, and mm -hmm. wipe all the, the divots and grass off the shoes that you just walked straight through the greens with over somebody else's line. Yeah. Yeah. That cue is going through my head for the first like 20 minutes of every ride. It's pretty awesome. Well, thank you, Andre, for the question that we spent an ungodly amount of time answering and um, definitely let us know how much you weigh. <laughs> please. Yeah. <laughs> We've had a few um, emails over the years where there's been some 
really exceptional athlete numbers come across. And then I've had, I remember specifically, uh, uh, almost a pro based off his numbers in France. And then, you know, he followed up saying, Oh, I think I might've had that wrong. But Andre, actually I'm familiar with his, um, abilities. And so therefore, yeah, that's about right. But again, I would highly recommend being conservative. All right, let's try to bounce through a couple uh, other ones real quickly here. We're an hour in of uh, email questions and we've gotten a whopping <laughs> two done. We'll One, see how well this goes. Yeah. Chris, thank you very much for your helpful training insights. I've been very grateful for your broad positioning of sport, that we all went pro in something other than our sport and your specific guidance. You asked for some thoughts on areas of improvement for the weekly word. That is why I'm writing you now. Here we go, David. I suspect many of my listeners like me would appreciate additional and regular insights into injury prevention and management. Some of this can be anecdotal, how to tell the difference in your experience between a niggle and a red flag. Great question. And some of it might be more science or medicine-based. Injury prevention and the management are important enough that you might even devote a bit of time to this as a regular part of each podcast. Hmm. Here's an example of a question. You sensibly remarked at times that we should mostly train for what we do, running in my case. But I've noticed that many of my friends who include cycling and swimming alongside their running practice seems to have less injuries than those of us who focus only on running. It's on this basis I've recently added cycling to my own training and find it does seem to help with glute and hamstring issues. So basic questions such as this, how can cross-training be used to reduce injuries? Would be great to cover, as well as a whole list of other puzzles. Stretch before or after. What core strength is most important for runners? Foot health, etc. I'm amazed by how well injuries that have me thinking, ah, this is serious, can be managed successfully. But it would be terrific to have a more have a clearer and more programmatic approach to this to replace some of my current guesswork. I'm pretty rigorous about the basis for most of my training activities. But this one important area is really more done by feel than I would like. Personally, I try not to think about my injuries much and I've never had something I couldn't fix myself. But I worry this is an amateurish, unsustainable approach to such an important issue. Thanks for the podcast, Josh. All right, well, this is a great question, but not one I'm gonna answer. Because and and David, please feel free to chime in. Um, but injuries is your classic example of the Holiday Inn Express uh, commercial, right? Um, I'm not a doctor, nor did I stay in a Holiday Inn Express last night, and therefore, it's something I listen to athletes on. I guide them to which doctor they should see at what point but I stay far away from giving them any type of um, qualified input because I also know that in a lot of ways, what I will say, they will take to heart, maybe not actually act upon, but take to heart. And I would never want to be the contributor, if not the cause to an injury getting worse or a niggle turning into an injury and so forth. I am one who is very conservative with injuries, 
I have a niggle, I avoid the training. I avoid doing that activity for a day or two. Just last week, my hamstring started to tighten up again. Seems to be an issue on my right hamstring. I didn't run for three days. So be it. I just swam. I didn't do strength training. I didn't do any step-ups. I didn't do any type of, you know, cross training. So I swam. That's different. Um, But yeah, I, I don't really get into this space. I think there's many more qualified people than me out there that are easily available in PTs, in doctors, in specialists, and ones that have a lot more knowledge in this space than me. And so, yeah, it's one that... I do stay away from, and that's for all my athletes. As a matter of fact, with most of my athletes, because they're conservative on seeing a doctor or seeing a massage therapist or seeing a physical therapist or seeing an acupuncturist or seeing whatever, um, I'm usually the one who says, well, you've been off for three, four days now. Have you actually seen a doctor? Have you gone to a therapist as in PT? Have you tried getting a massage? Have you, you know, and then, oh yeah, no, I didn't think of that. Or no, I was just going to see if it was just going to go away. Well, if you're going to take this seriously, you want to use the resources around you and find out who can provide you with the answer, not wait on how to get the answer yourself. I'd rather be surrounded by who's than sit there and trying to figure out the how. I don't need to do that work. Like, and this is talking about my me, the athlete, not the coach. But it's a lot of how I also work with athletes in that I defer to those who have the experience, not what I think. What about you, David? I like that big picture perspective that you bring about this. I really do, because I'm, as you know, the detail person in the operation, and um, I easily lose the forest for the trees. I I do, though, have a different take to this as far as you differentiate between injuries that naturally occur if you just run and injuries that involve something more complicated going on. And if there's something else going on, uh, and we do have this with one of our athletes who had his back go out again recently, for example, and... I I know without a doubt, and he does too, that this was not caused by our training. This was other factors from his past being alive that are catching up with him. Uh, But conversely, there are injuries that will reliably happen if you do nothing but run and sit at a desk and cook dinner and live your normal life. And those are the ones that I think we can focus on in answering this question very high level and not getting too into the details. Email me if you want any of the programming that I can copy paste to you that's not customized or specific. um, And that would be david at aimpcoaching.com. But I think it's important to focus on three checkboxes that you have to have in addition to your run training. And those are making sure that your form is good, you know, you're not heel striking, you are running with good mechanics, etc. And if people are like, no, every form of running is beautiful, heel striking is great. No, it's not. Don't do it. Next is strength. You have to be strong. This is non-negotiable. If you have muscles that are incredibly weak and are no longer contributing to you running efficiently and well and strong, then you're going to have compensations and you're eventually going to break. 
And that happens very commonly because most runners get the exact same injuries again and again, right? Their IT band gets tight, their hamstring pulls. Why? Why is this the thing that keeps happening? Plantar fasciitis. Um, and so there's a number of strength exercises that you would want to incorporate. And the checklist to go through is to make sure that every single muscle is trained and strong in your hips, in your legs, in your ankles. It gets a little more complicated. Um, but in your core as well, right? You can't be weak anywhere. So that's that. And then third is flexibility. You can't be overly tight. You have to have a full range of motion that you utilize when you're running. So if you go to do a stride, for example, which is a very fast, short 20, 15 second run that is a big range of motion, right? Your knee comes up high and then your leg, your foot strikes, and then you're you have a huge amount of extension um, where your glutes contracting and your foot swings behind you. There's all sorts of things going on. You're not just um, dealing with the frontal plane and a little bit of transverse, but you're dealing with the hip, uh, the femur rotating internally, externally. There's a lot going on. All of those flexibilities need to exist. And if they don't, then you're going to mash things against other things. And uh, hip impingement can occur and weird compensations torquing your body into a weird position so that you can have a big stride even though your hip flexors are so tight that you can't extend your your leg behind you enough or you are cocking your hip in a weird way because you don't have hip internal rotation uh, these are these are things that can be solved through a movement a stretching practice and the purpose of stretching is not to stretch the purpose of stretching is to restore a range of motion so that you can get, then go do a full range of motion in your exercises and be a normal healthy person so that's that's my rant on that i like that but you know what you just said there the last part is actually a very Profound. I'm going to use that on you for once, David. Um, Yay, the, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, that stretching is not to stretch a muscle. It's to return to a range of motion that allows you to do said activity in an efficient and um, healthy manner. And that is often overlooked and not to be, that that is a very, very important point. And I thank you for bringing that up because too many athletes stretch also an injured muscle, right? I come across this all the time with athletes where my calf is tight or I have a niggle in my calf or my hamstring hurts. And so I started stretching it more. Well, A, you don't stretch an injured or niggled area. That's only going to make it worse. <laughs> and then secondly, you know, Again, you're not stretching the muscle. You're trying to return to a range of motion. And that's why also a lot of the stretching, if you think about it for running, isn't necessarily a movement of the muscle. It's a movement of the joint and the hip. And, the, you know, it's not just lateral or horizontal movement. And you're actually really good about doing that for your own self to make sure how everything sits in the hip pockets and the lower back and your hamstrings and your glutes and because everything connects through the hips. And if there's not a range of motion there, there's compensation there. And we both know where that goes. So it's a very, very valid and important point. The other part on that that I don't want to overlook is um, doing other sports. So that's a part we can answer with regards to uh, cross training can be used to reduce injuries. 
that's a loaded uh, sentence. It doesn't necessarily uh, one equal the other, that it reduces en- injuries because for many, increasing other training hours increases the load on the body, therefore increases the likelihood of overtraining or injuries in the activity that they're focused on. So something to be careful with. Um, but yeah, some cycling and some swimming is great. Just use, again, back to range of motion. You're you're turning the legs over in the hip socket nicely side by side on a bike for sure. It's very helpful. But again, most athletes don't have the time to do the training that they're already assigned to do. And if we're going to try to achieve the outcomes that we're looking to achieve, this is where it gets into sort of a gray zone. Would it be nice to be doing other activities and yoga and more strength training and in some cases, stretching and some body work and so forth? Yes, for sure. And some cycling and some swimming for sure. But when the training time is so limited to 45 minutes a day, hour and 15 minutes a day, maybe two hours on the weekends, um, then we have to use that. What's the most effective use of our limited training time? How do we maximize the limited training hours that we actually do have, the ones that we can execute? Because as I say hundreds of times on this podcast, it's not about the training plan. It's about how do we actually execute the plan that's on paper, given our lives, given our responsibilities, given our family, given our community, given our profession, and so forth. So it's it's just not a topic that enough are presented with. What do you think, David? Yeah, it's it's so well, I know you're going to have a blog post coming out about this soon. Uh, the difference between complicated versus complex. It's I'm curious to see where this falls when you frame that out, but these are incredibly nuanced topics that we're talking about, and you could easily throw away, but what about this into any aspect of it? And then we could get into the nuances of it for an hour. And that's what we have with, yeah. with training. Sorry to interrupt you there, but do you know how many athletes come to us and talk about, well, so-and-so is doing this. And I also read that this is really good. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of things are really good. <laughs> but when you free up an extra five hours a week, I'd be glad to add that to your training program. <laughs> but, yeah. Gosh, that's the then, dream, right? <laughs> right? Like, and that's, that's what constantly comes up. And it's like, first, give me green. And you, everybody on Training Peaks knows what I'm talking about. First, give me green. Then let's go beyond that. Yeah. And for those who aren't on training peaks, green is the workout that's prescribed that the the workout turns green, the color green when the athlete has done the workout and to the time or distance specifications. And yeah, I have one more email that I sent to an athlete that I would wanted to share. And then we will close this email version of the podcast down. And I thought this one would be another good one to share. Hi, JP. Nobody ever said this was easy. The entire challenge is that it needs to somehow fit in with the rest of our lives and therefore comes with an enormous jigsaw puzzle to find a way to get this training in. And let me tell you this. The value of doing this is not that you will achieve it. 
anyone can achieve Ultraman with a bit of consistent training. Seriously, it's achieving it despite all the stresses of daily life. Therein lies the challenge and the difficulty of this all. It all looks glamorous on paper, but then when actually having to do the training within our busy lives, that is where it gets overwhelming. And that ties into what we just talked about. So um, I've never met the person slash athlete where life gets easier, less busy a year or so later. It just doesn't happen. It always is either just as busy or even more busy next year. So this was about pushing the event to next year. And I just don't believe, and many of you hopefully agree, but even if you don't, you know by past experience, life doesn't get emptier. Life doesn't free up magically year over year. And that's what I'm talking about here. But life very rarely clears up and we have more time. So in thinking this way, deferring your event to next year, I challenge you to look ahead how that might be realistic. This is hard. It needs to be. As your joy and fulfillment at the finish line will reflect this time and how difficult it all was to manage and that you persevered despite it all. If you had the time, the finish line would not feel the same. 